0: and welcome to episode 161 of real life ghost stories to kick things off this week we need to thank our newest patreon subscribers i would like to thank sonia dryden lee sutton adam west marion diaz rosie wright emily Plourde, really trent Gillian sheffer disco sister g reed natasha jennifer scott laura thomas Adriana Perez, Alison Von Ende, Melissa Holman, Jessica Chalice, Michael Stacy, Sheena Galagos, and Jana Reed. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And we have got a promo this week, which I am very excited about. You know I love a promo. And this week's promo is for one hundred horrors. So if you like longer form comedy film reviews, that are all centred around horror films, then this one is for you. Have a listen to their promo and make sure you go and listen and subscribe. Hey! hey! Hello! Hey. Welcome to 100 Horrors, a comedy podcast that seeks to rank the best 100 horror films of all time, as dictated to us by a poster that one of us owns. Every week we bickle over another film in an attempt to give it an overall scare factor and secure its place in the 100 horrors list. With features such as... And <laughs> what would you say to a We take a light-hearted approach to horror cinema so that it can be enjoyed by even the most squeamish of listeners. So whether you're the person who's never seen a horror film in their life or the person who has a tattoo of Leatherface on the right arse cheek, there's something to be enjoyed in every episode of 100, 100 Horrors. <laughs> And our film review this week. Our film review is You Are Not My Mother. You Are Not My Mother was released in 2021. It is 5.7 out of 10 on IMDb and 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's the week before Halloween. Shar's bedridden mother, Angela, has mysteriously gone missing. All that remains is her abandoned car parked in the middle of a field. When Angela returns home to their North Dublin estate the following evening without explanation it becomes clear to Char and her grandmother Rita that something is amiss. She might look and sound the same, but Angela's behaviour has become increasingly erratic and frightening, as if she has been replaced by a malevolent force. As Halloween approaches, a night steeped in ancient Irish myth and legend, Char must unearth the dark secrets of her family in order to uncover the truth behind her mother's disappearance and save her, even if it means potentially losing her forever. Okay people, it is likes and dislikes time and we're going to start with the likes. And look, let me tell you, I loved this film. I loved it. It was the best horror film I've seen in quite a while. Thoroughly enjoyed it. First of all, it's really chilling, it's really atmospheric, it's really tense. If you're looking for a jump-scary, quick, go-go-go kind of horror film, this is not the one for you. I loved the exploration of changeling lore and usually stories about changelings tend to take place like in the mountains, in the woods, in some remote area. And I liked that this was taking place in a North Dublin housing estate because it was really different than what we usually imagine about Changeling lore. We kind of tend to imagine, you know, people in rural Ireland who are a little bit backwards. They have all these old superstitions and old ways and someone from the city comes to this part of the country and they don't understand and they don't believe the locals. But in this instance, it all takes place in the city, which I enjoyed. There are lots of references to the old ways to protection spell casting, to the different ways of protection spell casting, and lots of references in it to St. Bridget. Now, I'm a big fan of St. Bridget. St. Bridget is the lesser known patron saint of Ireland. St. Patrick gets all the airtime. St. Bridget is also there too, and she originally was a pagan goddess, and then it was kind of turned into a Christian patron saint as Christianity became more commonplace in Ireland. And I went to a Bridgetine convent, so a convent that was run by nuns who had dedicated their lives to St. Bridget. So I know a bit about St. Bridget, okay? And I know a good St. Bridget's Cross when I see one. And there were lots of good St. Bridget's Crosses in this story. So big up St. Bridget for getting the airtime that she deserves. And in general, I found this film very frightening. Like, I was enraptured the entire time. I was really gripped. I was worried. There was an ambiguity to what was going on. As with a lot of Changeling stories, there's a lot of questions about, is this really a Changeling story or is this an allegory for mental health issues? And I was really emotional when I was watching it. I think as well as being a good horror film, it sort of fundamentally highlighted the difficulties of being a child of a parent who has a significant mental health problem and that felt very emotional. I also loved the fact that it was all centred around Halloween and the build-up to Halloween in Ireland. So Halloween is a really big deal in Ireland. Trick-or-treating is massive. Kids all over the country in villages and towns and housing estates will have bonfires and every year without fail the council don't want the bonfires to happen. So you've got kids who are trying to hide all their items that they're building these bonfires with and then the council come and take them down and it's like an age-old problem in Ireland that kids have to face every Halloween and they try and figure out more and more clever ways of concealing their bonfire until it's lit and then once it's lit the council can't do anything about it and that's a whole storyline in this film which seems really silly to a lot of people but it was really nice to see like a genuine representation of what Halloween is actually like in Ireland and I am going to make a special mention to a moment in this film that scared the bejesus out of me and it is the moment when the mother dances and she does this really terrifying sort of primal version of Shannos dancing and Shannos dancing is an old type of Irish dancing which is kind of like tap dancing but your arms are kind of wild and free and it's all about really feeling the beat of the music and she does this in the sitting room and it's like it really scared me. I was quite shocked watching it. And as for the dislikes, There's a storyline within it that centres around the bullying of this young girl called Char, who is the centre of this story. And she's being bullied by the kids in school. And I just think too much time was dedicated to the bullying storyline. I wasn't mad on the storyline of the bullying. And I really think it's hard to portray bullying on screen without it becoming cheesy and almost being like, you know, those PSA videos they do about how bullying isn't cool. I think they always end up looking a bit like that when you try and portray bullying on screen because it's hard to portray the nuance of bullying so you end up having to go for like the big guns with it and it's I just didn't I just didn't particularly enjoy those scenes. And actually I would have liked to have known a bit more about her mother prior to her disappearance. We learn bits and pieces about her mother's mental health before she disappears and she disappears like really early on in the film, but we don't know that much about her and how her mental health issues really presented themselves. And I think that's just my own curiosity about wanting to know more about how this family operated prior to this whole situation. I think I'm going to be a little bit controversial with my score on this one, because I'm going to give it five stars, even though there were elements of it that I didn't enjoy as much. This is a debut feature film for the director and the writer. I think her name's Kate Nolan. And it's a relatively low budget like indie film. But I just thought it was so good. I thought it was so good that it really does deserve those five stars. If you like a chilling, slow, atmospheric horror film, this is the one for you. It kind of gave me a mix of Babadook and His House vibes. That was the feelings that I got from it. So if you liked those two films, I think you'll like this one. Five stars from me. Which brings us to our story this week. I've kind of avoided doing this story because I knew it was going to be pretty difficult to wade through all of the information. In saying that, I knew nothing about this story until I did a bulk paranormal book buy from World of Books and I saw this book and I thought, yeah, I'll I'll throw it into the basket. Sure, we'll have a look and see how good it is. And when I started looking at the book, I thought, "Oh, this is an interesting story." And then I thought, "Oh, There's so much information to get through and I need to figure out what's good for the podcast and what isn't. So I need to caveat this story by saying that the information that you hear in this episode is by no means exhaustive because holy moly, there is a lot to this story. And any of my direct quotations come from a book called The Haunting of Willington Mill by Michael J. Hallowell and Darren W. Ritson. And if you want to know more about this story, that is the book to get, because they go through every single source possible. So let's get into it. There are a few certainties in this world, but one of them is that if you are listening to this podcast, then you likely would have been accused of witchcraft. Maybe you were simply a woman. Maybe you had too many children or indeed too few. Maybe your neighbours were unable to conceive, maybe milk in your house had soured, maybe you didn't brush your hair, or maybe you let your toenail clippings fall onto the kitchen floor. The reason for accusations of witchcraft were as numerous as they were arbitrary. And there were, of course, some people who were accused of witchcraft who simply followed the old path. They were healers and wise people who generally lived on the fringes of society and were both feared and often respected. This story is not a story about witch trials, but it starts with a witch, or at least what the villagers thought was a witch. Little is known about the Willington witch, but what we do know is that she was notorious. She lived on a plot of land in Willington in the early 1700s, and it would seem that people were really frightened of her. There's no record that demonstrates what she actually did, but she was so notorious that she was written about by Montague Summers, a Catholic priest who documented her in his book, The Geography of Witchcraft. There are also allegations that the Willington witch was so despised that she was even denied a deathbed confession and conversion, which was highly unusual at the time. After her death, the cottage was ripped down, despite the fact that we have no real knowledge as to what the Willington witch was supposed to have actually done, her cottage and the land around where it sat was rumoured to have been cursed after she died, and the local people feared the consequences of disturbing the land. There is some speculation that the witch was actually a midwife named Mrs Pepper. Mrs Pepper was accused of witchcraft. She practised a strange mix of Roman Catholicism and Wicca and as a result, people feared her immensely. We can also speculate that there was a perceived power with the knowledge of how to bring children into the world, and perhaps if things went wrong during the birth, an easy scapegoat to blame would be Mrs. Pepper. She was subsequently cleared of all her charges and all records about her disappear, but at the same time as Mrs. Pepper disappeared from record, a man named Mr. Oxen built a cottage for his mother-in-law on Willington Key, Willington Key was just an average small village of average people and it had everything you could possibly need. The Willington Mill was built in either 1800 or 1806 but there is evidence that the new mill was built on an existing mill. Right from the offset the mill had a bad reputation. Locals talked about a dark aura that resided above it, a dark cloud that hung over the building, and there were rumours that during the construction of the building, a woman had been brutally murdered and maybe hidden in the walls. These rumours were unsubstantiated, but they persisted nonetheless. And of course, there was the rumours that the land around the mill had been cursed by an evil witch 100 years before. The new mill was constructed by three men, Joseph Proctor, Joseph Unthank, and William Brown. It is rumoured that the alleged murder of the woman in the construction of the mill was connected to the Brown family, and it is true that Brown inexplicably left the business while it was thriving and moved his family away. After Brown left, the Untank family moved in. There is record that Untank was warned that the mill was haunted prior to him moving his family in, but he was undeterred by the rumours. While Untank was living in the house, the family began to hear and see strange things. Untank reported that he heard a mangle going all night long and was so perturbed by it that he inquired with the housekeeper as to whether anyone in the household was operating a mangle all night or whether there was a mangle in the house at all. There was no mangle in the house and no machine that would be making the kind of noise that he described. We also know for a fact that in the time that Joseph Untank and his family lived in the three-storey mill they never used the second floor and they kept a room on the third floor permanently locked, even going as far as bricking up the windows. Eventually, Joseph Unthank moved his family out of the house and subsequently denied ever having any paranormal experiences in the building. After the Unthanks vacated the property, Joseph Proctor moved his family in. By 1842, Joseph Unthank and Joseph Proctor had passed away and their sons, Charles Unthank and Joseph Proctor Jr. were left in charge of the mill. And this is where our story really begins. The Unthanks left the mill in 1831, and young Joseph Proctor moved in. After young Joseph Proctor died in 1875, his son Edmund discovered that he had kept a diary of all of the strange events that occurred in the mill. The following incidents took place over a period of five and a half years. It started with the nursemaid. At night she would be left to tend the baby in the nursery on the second floor and initially the noises she heard did not bother her. She simply assumed they were the sounds of the house settling or the sounds of someone moving around upstairs. In the quiet of the night she began to hear footsteps trudge across the floor above her head but one night the footsteps were relentless. They paced back and forth across the floor, becoming more and more frantic. Heavy steps that were pounding up and down until eventually a huge thud shook the nursery so much that the windows rattled. The combination of the windows rattling and the dawning realisation of where the steps were coming from were enough for the nursemaid to finally report her fears the steps were coming from the locked room above, the room with the boarded-up windows, and she knew for a fact that the door had been nailed shut as long as she had been there. And then, Joseph Proctor Jr. had decided to open it up. The nails were removed from the door, and on entering the room, Proctor observed that there was no furniture and the window and the fireplace had been boarded up. As if to keep something in numerous times staff had heard footsteps in what was to become known as the disturbed room staff would check the room and there would obviously be nobody there as ideas about status at the time dictated the worries and concerns of the staff weren't taken seriously and were seen to be the superstitions of local people until proctor's wife heard the footsteps and the banging from the disturbed room while she was in the nursery. She wondered why the maid was cleaning out the room, and upon inquiry, she realised that there was no one in the room at all. This pattern continued. The maid who had witnessed the window rattle had quit her post soon after the incident, herself rattled by the continuous noises at night. When a new maid entered the household, Proctor forbade anyone in the house from mentioning the disturbed room to her. It was only a few days before she, too, inquired about the person continuously pacing in the disturbed room. The household eventually deduced that the sound was that of a man pacing to the window and back again and stomping angrily in heavy boots. And then the activity moved outside of the room and seeped into the rest of the house. Proctor and his wife settled down to bed one night and were barely in bed when a strange sound reverberated around their bedroom, the distinct sound of a mallet hitting wood at least 12 times. No cause for the sound could be determined. A few nights later, they settled the baby into the crib next to their bed. As Proctor stood over the crib to ensure the baby was settled, he heard the sound of metal clang against the leg of the crib, and the wood of the crib vibrated against his hands as they rested on the bars. Workers in the mill reported hearing the noise of particular machinery in the millyard in operation that had been sitting idle all night, and no explanation could be found for the sounds. It was also around this time that a local villager passing the mill reported seeing the transparent white figure of a woman standing in the second-story window of the mill. Mr. and Mrs. Mann lived in a cottage on the grounds of the property, and they had free use of the coal that was used for the mill. One night Mrs. Mann went to the coal shed in order to top up for the night. And as she approached the house, something made her stop in her tracks. She could see a white figure in the second story window. She stopped and stared in amazement as the apparition paced by the window, stopping every so often to apparently gaze out of the window. The apparition was translucent and glowing in the darkness. There was no moon and no natural light so the glowing was stark against the black night. Mrs. Mann called frantically for her husband, who appeared by her side and followed her gaze to the figure that was still glowing in the window, pacing and pausing, pacing and pausing. As they watched, they began to make sense of what they were seeing. They realised that the figure in the window seemed to be a priest and also seemed to be slowly disappearing before their eyes. Mr. Mann ran to the door of the proctors, in order to rouse John Proctor to witness the bizarre event. But the door remained unanswered. The noises in the house continued, with phantom sounds happening regularly. The family heard the sounds of footsteps, of the hammering of wood, of a clock being wound, and of heavy sacks being dropped on the floor from a height. But until this point, whatever was in the house had refrained from any physical interaction with the family. One night, Elizabeth Proctor and her nursemaid were in bed, tending to one of the children. Elizabeth was on the bed when she felt the strange sensation of being weightless. She looked around in shock, fully aware that she was still firmly planted on the bed and tried to make sense of what was happening. The bed had risen fully off the floor and then lowered slowly back to the ground. She sat on the bed, barely daring to breathe, and felt as the bed rose up once more and again a further time. She would later describe to her son Edmund that it felt as though a man was rising the bed with his back and lowering it down again. Her eyes slid to Pollard, the nursemaid, who had her back to her and seemed to be fast asleep. In shock, Elizabeth sat frozen on the bed until hours had passed and she felt it was safe to try and sleep. In the morning over breakfast, Elizabeth was still puzzling over the night's events and was shocked when her nursemaid timidly approached her. "'Ma'am, I'm sorry to intrude, but I was wondering if you felt anything strange last night. Something happened and I'm not sure if I dreamed it. And it wasn't long after this incident that Proctor woke the house screaming for a light. "'Bring me a light! For God's sake, someone bring me a light!' He had felt his bed rise into the air and needed desperately to check the room. Perhaps one of the most terrifying experiences for the family so far happened to a visitor to the house. Jane Carr was the aunt of the children and was visiting for a while. She had heard knocks, bangs and footsteps and was refusing to sleep on her own, so had requested that the cook Mary Young spend the night in the room with her. It is important to note that both women were awake at the time of this event and this is taken directly from the diary of Proctor. Mary Young heard the slot in the door apparently slide back, the handle turn and the door to open. A rushlight was burning on the dressing table but the bed was an old four-poster and the curtains being drawn nothing could be seen. A step then went to the rushlight, and appeared by the sound to snuff it. And then lay down the snuffers. In the act of the snuffing, the light was transiently obscured, as when the act is customarily performed. Jane C. then felt it raise up the clothes over her twice. Then they both heard something rustle the curtains as it went around the bed. On getting to Mary Young's side, she distinctly saw a dark shadow on the curtain. On getting to the bedboard, where Jane C. lay. A loud thump, as with a fist was heard on it. Something was then felt to press the counterpane on Mary Young's side of the bed, the curtain being pushed in, but nothing more seen. Whatever the visitor might be was then heard to go out, seeming to leave the door open. In the morning, they found the door still bolted, as it was left when they went to bed. In this occurrence, Jane C. heard and felt everything as described but having her head under the bedclothes could not see the shadow as her companion did. This incident felt different to the others. It felt dark and threatening. The purposeful snuffing of the lamp to obscure its identity, the shadow on the bed curtains and the fist slamming against the board seemed darker than the other incidents. The poltergeist activity continued and escalated with regular whistling being heard throughout the house, as well as the customary thumps and bangs. But little Jane, the proctor's now four-and-a-half-year-old daughter, began to talk about a head. A head that she had seen at night-time at the end of her bed. She described the head as being like that of an old woman, covered in a shroud of some sort. She said the head was watching her, and the old woman had raised a finger on each hand, pressing them together as she watched Jane in bed. Jane buried her head under the covers and eventually fell asleep. The children had all reported at various points, hearing bangs and crashes around the house. But now they began to report, hearing voices in the rooms with them. Voices that seemed to be saying strange and inconsequential words like, Never mind, and, Come here. The children's beds were shaking at night time and the banging, dragging and knocks continued. It was then that the family agreed to hold a vigil. The vigil was scheduled to occur on the 3rd of July 1840 when the proctors and the majority of their staff were due to be on holiday. Edward Drury, a local and respected doctor and chemist Thomas Hudson were the two men who would take part in this vigil. The strange part about this section of this curious little tale is that neither Hudson nor Drury knew the other one was going to be there and they seemed to have not liked each other very much. Even stranger than this is that Joseph Proctor also turned up at the house, despite having to travel a really long way back, earlier than his family from his trip, despite organising with the remaining staff that these two men would be staying and despite the men not knowing that he was going to be there. The men sat down to eat prior to commencing the vigil and it is suggested that prior to the dinner both men were sceptical about the validity of the alleged haunting but after listening to Proctor's testimony over dinner they were convinced by his earnestness that the haunting was very real. At around 11pm Drury and Hudson made their way upstairs and settled themselves opposite the door to the disturbed room where Proctor believed much of the activity was emanating from. For a while there was nothing Sounds that they heard could have been credited to the house, machinery nearby, or the sound of wagon wheels, so they dismissed them immediately. But then sounds began that they could not rationalise. They heard the pitter-patter of bare feet running across the wooden floorboards. They heard and felt raps on the floorboards beneath their feet. Coughing and rustling came from the empty corridors, as if someone wearing a bustling dress was sweeping down the hallway and then Drury saw her. Hudson had opted to close his eyes and doze for a few minutes, and Drury picked up his pocket watch to check the time. As he put his pocket watch away, he described something momentous. In taking my eyes away from the watch, they became riveted upon a closet door, which I distinctly saw open, and also saw the figure of a female attired in greyish garments, with the head inclining downwards, and her left hand pressed upon her chest as if in pain. The other, the right hand, extended towards the floor with the index finger pointing downwards. It advanced, with an apparently cautious step across the floor towards me. Immediately as it approached my friend who was slumbering, its right hand was extended towards him. I then rushed at it, giving at the time, as Mr Proctor states, a most awful yell, but instead of grasping it, I fell upon my friend and I recollected nothing distinctly for nearly three hours afterwards. I have since learned that I was carried downstairs in an agony of fear and terror. With the vigil being a success, word was fast spreading in the area about the haunting of Willington Mill and of course people suspected a decades-old curse from a long-dead witch. But for the Proctor family, They were forced to continue living in this cursed place, dealing with the constant poltergeist activity. Elizabeth was plagued with episodes of sleep paralysis, which terrified her deeply. The children began to report more and more activity. Little Joseph reported hearing his own name being called in his own voice, which deeply terrified him. Little Joseph and Henry reported seeing a white face peering down at them between the banisters of the stairs and as they watched, the creature, whatever it was, seemed to bound away down the corridor with huge leaps. More alarmingly, Little Joseph reported that when he entered his bedroom one day, there was a woman sitting on his bed, staring at him, except that she had no eyes, only empty black holes where her eyes should be. The toddler, Edmund, became absolutely petrified of his crib and would scream and cry at something that no one else could see. He regularly talked about a funny cat that no one else could see and would follow it around and search for it under chairs and tables. A local woman reported seeing a strange cat-like creature that was larger than a domestic cat and had an elongated snout and was snow-white it walked through a closed gate onto the Proctor's property where it was seen by Joseph Proctor and was also seen a number of times in and around the property. Similarly, a man who was courting Mary Young at the time reported seeing a similar creature and when he swung his foot to kick at it, his foot went through the creature and the creature disappeared. He got such a shock that he thought it was best to report it to Mr Proctor just in case. And then there was a monkey. It is not often that we come across a phantom monkey in any of these stories, but that is exactly what happened here. The children were in their playroom together and little Joseph was sitting on top of a dresser when he felt something tug at his trouser leg. And when he looked down, it was a monkey. He screamed and jumped down from the dresser and the children gave chase after the monkey as it bounded out the door and into another room. They saw it disappear under the bed the children were found running around frantically searching for this monkey that they swore they saw. To be honest, I probably wouldn't have included this encounter if it wasn't for what Edmund wrote about it later. He said, Now it so happens that this monkey is the first incident in the hauntings or whatever they may be termed, of which I have any recollection. I suppose it was or might easily be the first monkey I had ever seen, which may explain my memory being so impressed that I have not forgotten it. A monkey, and upstairs in the nursery, that is the business. My parents have told me that no monkey was known to be owned in the neighborhood, and after diligent inquiry, no organ man or hurdy-gurdy boy, either with or without a monkey, had been seen anywhere about that place or neighborhood, either on that day or for a length of time. Although I freely admit that the evidence of an infant barely two years old is of very small import. Yet I may say I have an absolutely distinct recollection of that monkey and of running to see where it went to as it hopped out of the room and into the adjoining blue room. We saw it go under the bed in that room, but it could not be found or traced anywhere afterwards. We hunted and ferreted about the room and every corner of the house, but no monkey or any trace of one was more to be found. I don't know what to make of such a visitation, and I have no explanation to offer, but that it was a monkey, that it disappeared under the bed in the blue room that Saturday afternoon and was never seen or heard of again. This is not merely from my childhood recollection, but from the repeated confirmation of my brothers and sisters in afterlife. I am perfectly certain. I am merely recording the facts as simply as I can, Readers may smile and mock, as seemeth good unto them. I cannot alter what has taken place to suit either them or anyone else. The noises and disturbances continued. Little Joseph reported that an old man had appeared in his bedroom, and in a separate incident, he reported that he had seen a version of himself pacing around his bedroom silently. But little Joseph was too petrified to call out to anyone for assistance. The family continued to hear crashes, bangs, footsteps, voices, the rustling of dresses, and so on. And the diary abruptly ends in August 1842. Edmund added a note to state that although the diary ended, the family had indeed witnessed more phenomena around the house and grounds. The Proctor family left the grounds in 1847. Now, I don't normally include the testimony of psychics in stories like this as evidence but there is an interesting story of a psychic attached to the Willington Mill. The Society for Psychical Research published an interesting little tale about a man identified as Dr. F, who had discovered through hypnotism sessions that a woman named Jane seemed to possess psychic abilities. Jane had approached him about her inability to sleep soundly, and he suspected that she was clairvoyant. He knew of the case of the Willington Mill and decided that he would use the story of the Willington Mill to try and understand Jane's alleged abilities. Jane knew nothing of what the content of the session would be prior to beginning it, and the full transcript of the sessions were printed by the Society for Psychical Research. In these sessions, Jane recounted the following about Willington Mill. A Quaker man had lived there and had fled the house after seeing apparitions of a woman. A woman not married to the gentleman had died in the house and Jane was of the opinion that the man of the house had something to do with her death. A lady with white skin flits around the house and Jane described her as having eyes but having no sight. Jane advised that the woman was connected to the cellar. Something had happened in the cellar, some mischief and that that woman was connected to the cellar. Jane also saw another woman in the house and the woman was violently angry and she somehow was connected to animals. Jane suggested that she had a monkey and an animal that resembled a cat, but it wasn't a cat, but she couldn't identify what the animal actually was. She said there was a man in the house that would stomp around angrily and that he was a priest. Brown, Unthank and Proctor were all indeed Quakers. And here's the interesting bit. There is a cellar in Willington Mill, and it is never mentioned in the diaries. At some point, while he was a resident there, Joseph Proctor ordered the excavation of the cellar. And during the excavation, the workers found a large stone slab that they believed was concealing something. When the slab was discovered, Proctor immediately called off the investigation and bid the workers to down tools. And the slab was never investigated. So like I said before I started this story, I really had to strip it back. And I'm sorry about the confusion about the names, but there were like, Joseph's everywhere, and then suddenly the original Joseph and Joseph died, and then their sons got involved, so it was all a bit confusing. So let's break it down again. You had Joseph Untank, Joseph Proctor and William Brown. Built this mill. Originally, the Browns lived there and then the Browns left, but they also completely broke off from the business altogether, which seems to be a very strange thing to do when the business was thriving. Then you have the Untanks moved in and then the Untanks moved out. Eventually, Untank and Proctor of the original trio die and their sons, also Joseph Proctor and Charles Untank, take over the business and Joseph Proctor Jr. and his family move into the house, which is where this story comes from. Joseph Proctor keeps a diary of everything that happens, and then when he dies, Edmund finds the diary and decides that he wants to release the diary. The info for all of this story comes from a book called The Haunting of Willington Mill by Michael J. Halliwell and Darren W. Ritson, and also a book called Extreme Hauntings by Paul Adams and Eddie Brazil. So I've got lots of thoughts about this story. The first thought is... The diary is said to be written as and when these things happen. So the implication being that every time an event happened, Joseph Proctor wrote it down in his diary. The thing is, is that there's loads of strange discrepancies in the diary. Like the dates are all written in a different format throughout, which is a bit odd, but I kind of get it's over five and a half years. And sometimes I change like my signature. Sometimes I change the way I write dates down you know, the order in which the dates are written down, or do you write like the 1st of December and write the word December, or do you write 12? You know what I mean? There's all different ways that you can write dates. So it is odd, but it's also understandable. The thing that's really weird about it is that a lot of the incidences involving the children seem to have been written after the events took place. So for example, there's one entry where it says, Joseph Proctor saw you know, a woman in his bedroom and he was approximately eight years old at the time. It doesn't really make sense that you would write he was approximately eight years old at the time of the event if you're writing it at the time of the event. You'd surely say he is eight years old and there's lots of little weebly bits like that that don't really make sense. So is it possible that he wrote the diary after the events happened? Yeah, I think that's pretty possible. I think the idea of framing it so that it's seen to be written, like, instantaneously was probably done to give it an air of honestness and earnestness and validity. But I don't know if it's necessarily true that it was all written at the same time that these events took place. There are times as well where Joseph Proctor refers to himself in the first person, but then he refers to himself inexplicably in the third person in other Parts of the diary. So at some points he refers to himself as I, and other points he refers to himself as JP or Joseph Proctor. So I wonder did Elizabeth write some of it, which would have been Joseph Proctor's wife, or did Edmund write some of it? And there is also a huge chunk of the diary missing. So the diary stops really abruptly. Edmund states that the diary was found by somebody. He doesn't necessarily say that he found it himself. I think there's often an assumption that Edmund found the diary, but is it possible that Elizabeth found the diary and removed some of the evidence from the diary or that the diary was simply lost, like elements of it were lost? It's hard to know, but either way, there is something about the diary and the way the diary is kept and the discrepancies throughout the diary and the fact that some of it is missing that just pique my interest. There are also individual incidents within the diary that make me question things. So there is the testimony of Mr. and Mrs. Mann who reported to have seen the figure of a priest in the window. And in that particular testimony, Mr. Mann went and ran to the door and knocked on the door to wake the proctors up. And you're telling me that nobody in that house opened the door. It can't have been that late, first of all, if Mrs. Mann was out getting cold for the fire for the rest of the night. Second of all, that is a house that is very clearly documented to have staff in it, to have maids, they, mo- they would have had cooks in the kitchen, they had nursemaids, and you're telling me that nobody in that house opened the door. It just seems really odd. I know it's a, like a tiny detail, but it seems really strange that no one would open the door in that incident. Especially if you are living at the mill that is your place of business. You would think that emergencies could happen in the middle of the night that you would need to be aware of. So not opening the door just seems really, just a really strange thing to have happened. There's another really odd entry in the diary that just says the children saw an object and followed it. But it doesn't say anything about what the object was or why the children followed it or whether the object was like an apparition or something else. But there is this account of what happened that was published by a journalist a couple of years later and it was a really scathing account. And in that really scathing account, The journalist talks about the children seeing household items floating and dancing through the air, like tongs for the fire and stuff. So if that happened, why would it not be included in the diary? Like, why would he not give descriptions of those incidents? Or maybe he just thought the children were exaggerating. Like, maybe he thought the children were overexcited or being particularly imaginative, wanted to make a note of it just in case. And the whole thing with the vigil is so strange. So basically, Dr. Drury seems to have contacted Proctor and said, I've heard that stuff's going on in your house. I'd love to come and visit to do a vigil overnight. And Proctor's like, yeah, fine. My family's going to be on holidays. I'm going to be away. None of us are going to be here. So you're welcome to come to the house. I'll let the servants know. And then randomly, this Mr. Hudson, the local chemist, shows up in order to do the same vigil. And honestly, the account of their vigil is absolutely hilarious. Like, they very clearly hated each other at one point during the vigil they stopped talking for like three hours because they're winding each other up so much Hudson brought a brace of pistols so that he could accidentally let them fall onto the floor in front of people to sort of threaten them into not faking anything I don't know what he thought was going to happen or how he had seen this play out in his head like he was going to stumble and all these big manly pistols were going to fall out of his jacket and then Proctor was going to go oh Look at all those pistols. I better not fake anything in case I get shot. I don't know if that was what he was thinking. But what we actually need out of this story is a rom-com sitcom, rom-com, maybe a rom-com between Hudson and Drury because they just really disliked each other. And the fact that they really disliked each other was very entertaining and palpable during the story. And why did Proctor come home from holidays? He literally got the train home on that day in order to be there while they're doing the vigil. I mean, maybe he thought... I need to be in the house while these strange men are there. Or maybe he thought, if they're going to see stuff, I need to be there to validate it. I don't really know, but it just seems strange that he booked it home from holidays after saying that he wasn't going to be there. I don't know, seems suspicious. And I think we just have to talk about the monkey. It's so outrageous. It's such an outrageous incident. But it's also so compelling because it's so outrageous. It's very easy to say... Oh, that definitely didn't happen. It was just kids making stuff up or not even making stuff up, you know, to be callous or to be kind of evil evils, evil geniuses. Like kids make stuff up all the time. It's just what kids do. But for Edmund to be so clear that this was his memory, this is what happened. Yes, he knows it's ridiculous. Yes, he knows people are probably going to laugh when they read it, but he can't help but state it as it happened. So it is what it is. And the fact that all the siblings had talked about it in later years and talked about how bizarre it was that they saw this monkey. And maybe it's possible that because Edmund was so young, what he has is like a false memory because his siblings had talked about the incident so much that he thinks he remembers seeing it. Maybe it was a game, like an imaginative game that they played and then now they've all got kind of a false memory of what actually happened because of the context of it being in this haunted house that it's suddenly these imaginative games become more real than they ever were. Like, is that possible? And whatever this cat creature was that was bigger than a cat and had an elongated snout and then was seen by the guy who was courting Mary Young. He also said it was sort of sheep-shaped, but but it wasn't like a sheep that he had ever seen. And then there was a report of other people seeing donkeys, like phantom... Phantom. phantom donkeys but I don't really know how to make phantom donkeys not funny you know that's why I didn't include it in the story maybe what was really going on here was that in that cellar Joseph Proctor had the world's shittest zoo maybe that's what was actually happening maybe that's why when they got to the slab he was like "Uh oh better not open that because the cat rabbit creature will escape and the phantom sheep and the monkey And the two donkeys that are down there. And he's just like, yeah, yeah, definitely. They're all phantom creatures, you know. It's my own personal zoo down here. And if we're not solving the mystery with a phantom zoo, what the heck was in that cellar? What was in that cellar? Why would you excavate a cellar and then stop excavating as soon as you find a stone slab? I did think there was something really interesting about that woman's psychic testimony about the Willington Mill. And apparently she knew nothing of the mill beforehand. Now we can... We can't speculate on that one way or another because we weren't there and we don't know. But what she said was there was the spirit of a woman who we could speculate is the Willington Witch. There was the spirit of a woman who was murdered and there was the spirit of an angry priest. Now, I don't know where the angry priest came from, but the woman who was murdered, like what if that actually did happen? What if the rumours in the village were true? There was this rumour of a woman who had been murdered and buried in the walls. What if that was true? And no woman was ever reported missing. But the psychic claimed that the woman that she was sensing was foreign and she reckoned she was Spanish. What if it was a foreign woman who had sought out work in Willington? That's where she ended up. And then her family aren't going to know where she is or what happened to her. That was a time when people did just scatter all over the world and were never seen again. So I'm going to make a wild theory here. Okay? Just bear with me. What if William Brown was having an affair with this woman? And it is true. He did do something to her? What if that bit of the story is true? And what if he buried her not in the walls of the building but in the cellar? And what if the original three men, so Untank, Proctor and Brown, what if they all knew what had happened? And then Brown was like, I've got to get out of here. I can't be part of this anymore. Or they said to him, you can't be part of this anymore because you've done this horrific thing. And that's why he suddenly quit the business, signed everything over to the two of them and left and moved away. But they always knew that this is what happened. But then what if John Proctor Jr. found out this is what happened after the death of Unthank and his father Joseph Proctor and he decided to excavate the cellar to see if he could find where she was buried and once he found the slab that was proof enough for him and he couldn't go any further because he didn't want to besmirch the reputation of his father and therefore his family. Look, I don't want to say that I'm an investigative genius but I think I'm an investigative genius. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to go and check out the podcast 100 Horrors. The links that will be in the description and also the titles of the books will be in the description of the episode too if you want to go and check them out. I highly recommend actually The Haunting of Willington Mill. It is so detailed. They go through every single diary entry and they really pick them apart and interrogate them. And in the meantime if you are desperate for some extra content you can sign up to patreon.com forward slash real life ghost stories where for five dollars a month or two dollars a month you get access to heaps of extra content and also all of the main episodes and mini episodes completely ad free. If you want to know any more information about real life ghost stories podcast you can do so by checking out the website real ghost and on that note I shall see you next time.